for AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the latest on negotiations surrounding the future of the Colorado River. Author and journalist Carlin Betcha explores the surprisingly deep history behind girls' slumber parties and sleepovers and how they're still evolving in the 21st century. One woman's true story about finding a reservoir of inner strength greater than she ever knew. And author Gabriel Dozal talks about his new book, The Border Simulator. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The future of the Colorado River and all who depend upon it hang in the balance, but the negotiations over the river are being held mostly behind closed doors. Policymakers gathered in Las Vegas to share some updates with the public, and water users from around the West chimed in with their own hopes for the new set of rules that will govern the river's future. KUNC's Alex Hager reports for the Mountain West News Bureau. One thing we do know about the next set of rules negotiators still have a long way to go before they're set in stone. John Ensminger represents Nevada. There's tensions, but at the same time, I do believe there's been an acknowledgement that every state is going to have to be part of the solution. So I view that as progress. I view the meetings that happened here this week uh, as, as progress. On a stage in front of hundreds of people, Ensminger said the new guidelines will be a, quote, messy compromise that will be judged harshly by history. But he also said it'll be better than the supply-demand gaps of the past. If you look at the last 25 years of the Colorado River, you know, these imperfect, messy compromises, step by step by step, have gotten us much closer to equilibrium than we were at the turn of the century. Another thing that started coming into focus at the Vegas conference, those new rules are only going to be part of a long-term fix. Elizabeth Cobley researches water policy at the University of Nevada, Reno. We're never going to get a perfect solution. He did mention the term silver buckshot, so kind of the opposite of a silver bullet. You go at a, at a problem with lots of small solutions. People outside of those closed door negotiations are adding their two cents and working on that patchwork of solutions. Tribes, for example, have long been left out of discussions about how the river is managed, but they're starting to have more say. Stephen Rowe Lewis, governor of the Gila River Indian community in Arizona, says they can help states work on conserving water. We have the potential to be tremendous allies. Lewis said the 30 tribes that use Colorado River water need to be included going forward. Not just a seat at the table, we want to build upon them. You know, we, we want to be able to control the agenda that is for the betterment of all of, of the basin, for the entire region. Around the West, there are also some calls to go beyond conserving water and to use technology to add more to the system. Adele Hodge Khalil runs the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, which is investing hundreds of millions into equipment that can turn sewage back into drinking water. We can be victims of nature and hydrology and climate change, or we can adapt to it. You adapt to it through creating uh, abundance and augmentation of water supply. Hodge Khalil says right now we're not doing enough to add to that supply, which he says is like failing to put money away in your savings account. If you spend money paycheck to paycheck, there's times if you lose your job, you know, your family's at, at stake here. And the same thing we're doing here. 
other water wonks suggested changes to how we calculate the amount of water that's actually in the river. Andy Mueller, who runs the Colorado River District, says it's time to start accounting for water lost to evaporation and leaky canals in Nevada, Arizona, and California. We've got to measure that, and we've got to account for that in terms of the total consumptive use in the lower basin. That's what we need to do. Elizabeth Kobeli, the Nevada water professor, has her own suggestions for changes to river math, like leaning harder on data from streams rather than the amount that's in reservoirs. She says she's happy innovative ideas are getting support. But I think the devil's always sort of in the details of implementation when we when we figure out how to actually make them work in a really complex water rights system. And at the close of river talks that included a broad range of solutions, maybe the only certain thing is that negotiations will end with that messy compromise. I'm Alex Hager in Las Vegas. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. There are many aspects of American culture that get taken for granted, rites of passage and experiences that many of us shared growing up that may now just be distant points of nostalgia. The history of sleepovers and slumber parties, particularly for girls, is something that once occupied a unique place in adolescence, one that has transformed and evolved over hundreds of years. A recent article for the online feminist outlet Bust sheds light on the origins and current status of the American sleepover, and it was researched and written by Carlin Betcha. Betcha is an amazingly prolific artist and illustrator, and I spoke with her from her home in Massachusetts. During the 19th century, kids started to be separated because you know, tuberculosis was rampant, and we really didn't understand how it was being spread, but we do, did understand that it was being spread between families. So Victorian doctors, of course, are recommending that kids be separated while they sleep. The Victorian era obviously had a big influence on society and culture, and it changed the way we thought about a lot of things. But I'd like to know yeah. how it is that all of these sleepovers began getting in the press. You document that over 2,000 sleepovers by 1920 had made it into newspapers. Around the 1920s, my theory, and it's shared by many, is about the time women got the right to vote. Girls were getting more um, freedom in their social life. I mean, one of the things that was you know, new, we, we think of dating as really old, but the term dating didn't exist before 1920s. So young girls started having what's called petting parties, and they're, they're really, they were benign. Basically, all they did was cuddle, and sometimes they kissed, but parents were like, what's going on here? So in the 1920s, all these newspapers are reporting on slumber parties. The parents want to know what's going on in these parties. They're horrified. Like, young girls <laughs> stay up to all hours of the night. Is it witchcraft? We have to look back in time. During the 1920s, parents definitely felt like they were losing control of their teen. Like, there was, it was a definitely a, a wild child period for young girls. I mean, of course, they did not have the freedom that they do today. A young girl's reputation could be ruined if she did the wrong thing at one of these parties or, God forbid, you know, broke any societal rules. But at the same time, young girls were starting to stretch into you know, having their own social activities. And they were basically seen as young adults at this time. 
And, you know, when you read the newspaper, um, the way they describe them, they're, they're very tame. They're very sterile. And, you know, all the young girls are in their matching peignoirs, and it's all, you know, very prim and proper. And you look at it, and they, these young girls, they all have this devious grin on their face. And you just know some hijinks are going on at these parties. And what mostly they were doing is they were probably playing a lot of occult games because the occult games were very popular during this time period. Slumber parties gave young women and girls a chance to share secrets and to share perspective on their role, Mm -hmm. whatever the era might have been. So let's reflect Mm -hmm. on that for just a moment about the secret sisterhood that they explored together in this kind of um, protected space. Psychologists call that the Robinson ages. It's about uh, the ages about 9 to 12. And that is the age where young girls are really trying to push the boundaries and discover their identities. Coincidentally, you know, it's also right before puberty hits. So all, you know, young girls, they're experiencing these bodily changes. And of course, they want to get together with their friends and they want to release some of these tensions and fears. And they want to test the boundaries of fear, too. I mean, one of the most popular activities that will never go out of style at sleepovers is to freak your friends out. You know, it could be ghost stories. It could be the Ouija board. It could be fortune, you know, some other like tarot cards. So for this article, I kept asking all my friends, you know, what games did you play when you were a kid at sleepovers? And I asked my daughter this question, too. She's 15, so, you know, more, you know, Gen Z's current generation. And I was so surprised that we all played the similar games. And it's it's definitely generational. But Bloody Mary was a very popular one with my generation. And that's the one where you stare into a mirror and say, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, I believe in you. And then she supposedly appears before you in the mirror. Uh, what I found interesting is there's actually a scientific reason that ha- that happens. It's called the Toxler effect. And when they did research on having people stare at uh, one image for an extended period of time, you, you, you actually start to see distortions and you can start to see stuff because you, your, your eyes get tired and your brain starts to fill in the blanks of what you're not seeing anymore. I thought it was interesting that there was a scientific reason behind a lot of the games we played. Um, I'm sure everyone has played Leisure Board. I think that one kind of crosses generations, or at least I hope so. Uh, but that was a fun game we played, and that you know that has to do with the, everyone wants to know how is the planchette moving, and it's moved because of the ideomotor effect. And I thought that was fascinating how connected the mind and body are. But young girls were trying to predict what their futures would be. By doing it, and by doing it together, it's less fearful. It's a chance for young girls to talk about their bodily changes, and not on the internet. Because when you're, there's nothing like being around, you know, huddling close with your friends and expressing your fears in a way where they can comfort you in person. It's something that I fear kids are losing today. Well, let's talk about that. Where do we stand right now in 2023? After we've been through the worst part of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been trained in some way in the last few years to separate and to not physically be together. For a lot of young people, social media is filling that gap. Yeah, you know, it really saddened me that I saw that there was a trend on Twitter uh, with mothers asking to stop sleepovers. Um, Because, I mean, if anything, we shouldn't be stopping our kids from getting together in a supervised 
uh, gatherings. You know, I'm going to side with the Surgeon General on this one, and social media is probably more of a harm than what we're realizing. I'm one of those parents that I'm very careful with my daughter's social media use, but I do see some good in it, too. One of the games that she plays with her friends is after they have a sleepover, they list out all the funny quotes that were said during the night, and then they send it on a group chat to everybody. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a, that's a really powerful way to remember an evening, and you're using technology in a way that's empowering, and it's not hurting others. I mean, I don't need to tell lecture parents about this. I think every parent knows this, that the, the level of bullying on social media, it's getting to a level where I feel when kids are able to hide behind screens, that's when they're, they're playing with their fears in a negative way. Like kids are going to test boundaries. It's part of that liminal process of into adulthood. But we have to make sure that they're not testing boundaries in a way that's going to hurt others. And unfortunately, screens make us not accountable for hurting others. And that, that's, that's where I really worry. Carlin Betchez, a very busy author and illustrator. Her article on the secret history of slumber parties was recently published at bust.com. You can find a link and some photos on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. <laughs> There is something very compelling about a single voice telling a true story. Since 2004, Odyssey Storytelling has opened the door to a diverse and growing community of live, extemporaneous storytellers who have shared an infinite array of personal experiences live in front of an audience with no safety net, just a microphone and their souls. Joining us next is Ana Montañez, the Odyssey Storytelling executive producer since 2018. The first time that I heard someone say, you need to be strong, I was 14 years old. And although I've heard it many times after that, (laughs) and although it was said with the best of intentions, it definitely stuck with me. That particular day, a very well-intentioned uncle said it to me. And I don't know if it's because I was going through probably the first like big traumatic experience of my life. My baby brother had passed away and my mom was in a very deep depression, crippling in fact. And, you know, he had this advice for me. He said, you have to be strong. Be strong for your mom. Don't let her see you cry. It kind of stayed with me like an instruction manual. (laughs) I went about life for the next few years or several years really not really allowing myself to have super deep relationships or commitments or god forbid i have high expectations of anyone (laughs) you know because that was really how i kept myself safe i kept myself sane but after many years of living that way living that way made me cry and of course that was the thing that i hated the most so after all these years of trying to figure out how to deal with my emotions and stop avoiding them. I finally got into things like therapy and uh, groups and all kinds of things. And although it was helpful to some extent, I found myself once again, (laughs) 
sitting in a room across from my doctor doing the very thing that I hate, admitting that I had a problem that I needed some help with. And she was very aware of all the things that I'd been trying. And uh, I was fidgeting. I was fidgeting very badly. My anxiety was clearly coming through. I was playing with that ugly crinkle paper, the one that they put under, you know, on the exam seats. And I just kept ripping little pieces off of it. (laughs) And she said, so I see your anxiety's back. (laughs) And uh, she asked the question that scared me the most. She said, would you be willing to consider medication? That's like the thing that I avoided the most. Because in my mind, taking medication meant failure. It meant that I hadn't been able to conquer this thing on my own. It meant that I wasn't strong enough to deal with it. And I thought about all the people in my family that had had issues before. And maybe because I'm a first-generation immigrant, I come from Mexico, from a very kind of traditional little town in the state of Michoacan. And, you know, when you first get here as an immigrant, mental health is the last priority on your mind. You're busy surviving, getting, you know, (laughs) a job and learning the language and finding a place to live and all the other things. And so all I kept thinking was, how is this going to be the thing that stops me out of all the things that we've been through? But luckily, I I promised her that I would think about it. (laughs) And then I spent the better part of the afternoon, uh, messaging (laughs) on the sort of a group chat that I have with my sisters and my cousins. And I said, ladies, I need your help. I don't know what to do. Doctor says I should get on meds. And I, I just feel like such a failure. And then little by little, they all started saying, no, why would you feel that way? I've been on meds for years. (laughs) And come to find out all of these incredibly strong, same type of people as me, literally raised by the same people, same Mexican culture, all the things that I felt like were the no-nos were standing in front of me just saying, it's totally normal. Like, get over it. You're fine. It's going to be great. You're going to feel so much better. And as each of them kind of opened up and others realized we were all in the same boat, we all came to the conclusion that this is the generation that's finally breaking that last challenge because we've been able to overcome pretty much everything border aside poverty aside all of those things but mental health that's the biggest climb that was Anna Montañez you can find many more first person stories at odysseystorytelling.com the border we live near it so many people's lives are touched by it from industry to law to families, from the political to the social. But what is it? An arbitrary line drawn in the sand or a defining wall between nations and ways of life? Author, El Paso native, and U of A graduate, Gabriel Dozal explores the many functions and applications of the U.S.-Mexico border in his new book. It's a collection of poetry and prose called The Border Simulator. Here now is a reading, followed by an interview with Gabriel Dozal. Customs are waiting for me with their lassos and zip ties. I'm a pile of judgment days crossing the border. 
I tried to organize the hours waiting in line on the bridge, but days travel over days and erase them. I organize my tears instead. I keep some in my coat pocket. Customs finds my years or tears, whichever. And my story tears up the costume agent. Customs agent, ay, perdón, till she's blind in one eye. She tells me she might be able to open simulation. Before Customs lets me in, they need to paint my portrait. It's a slow process as they Niagara Falls through their post at the kiosk, revealing their daubs to themselves for Customs, like me, are made from hidden daubs of paint. The fence's eyes are located in its weaves, and I can feel its gaze. Yes, the fence looks at me just as I look at the fence. When you look at each other long enough, you start to influence each other's behavior, and the fence has seen me work for years at the border. The fence has seen me building it, the fence. My shadow is over there in El Paso, but I'm right here. Why didn't Customs check its ID? What's so special about my shadow? It's not even me. When the, the mass media takes on the issue of the border, particularly when it's a broadcast that's coming from a place that isn't on the border, it's very reductive. And you use an interesting device in the book with your two main characters, Primitivo and Primitiva. We, we don't get to know them that well, but we sure learn a lot about them on the way. So tell me a little bit about why the two characters were created, why they are the way they are. The vagueness of the characters, even though we learn a lot about them, like you say, adds another layer of depth to the narrative. And I wanted to have it be a brother and sister story. It's interesting that you, I now learn that these are actual names. I thought it was more of a, almost like an anthropological label, like this person mm -hmm. is not necessarily fully formed in what we think of as a contemporary or sophisticated person, but they are incredibly sophisticated. I mean, they have motives and needs mm -hmm. that cycle and kind of overlap and also yeah. sometimes contradict. It speaks to what you were just saying about the kind of like the cardboard cutout way that people at the border are portrayed in kind of larger kind of media spaces. And in the book, I try to play with that stereotype. Primitivo just means firstborn. It's an, it's an old name. You know, it's like an unpopular name now. But if you were the firstborn in your family, that was a common name, like, you know, I don't know, the 30s or 40s or 50s to be named Primitivo or Primitiva. But of course, I'm playing with that word primitive as well. There's a lot of layers as to what I'm uh, going for with those names, right? Um, it's a callback to my family. Um, it's a callback to see how I see people at the border represented in media. Um, you know, there's a line in the book that says borders all the way down, right? Which is a playoff of the turtles all the way down, right? Like a, one small turtle on top of a larger, top of a larger, and it keeps going, right? Um, and that complexity is part of the border. That complexity does not, um, is not as highlighted as I would like it to be. And I'm from there. You know, you have a pressure to write about, about these things. What region did you grow up in? Uh, El Paso, um, <coughs> Lower Valley, uh, Lower Valley of El Paso. Um, all my family is from there, um, from there or, or Juarez, Mexico. So you, you grow up crossing the border. You grow up living at the intersection of all of these languages. 
all, um, the culture in, in Mexico is different. It's a completely different, you know, and you can walk five minutes and feel that difference. There's like two million people in Juarez, right? And like one million in El Paso. It's just a little man-made river that separates them. The economics, the culture, the people, the jokes, the misheard, the misinterpretations of words, which is a big part of the book too, right? Mm -hmm. you, you mishear a lyric, you mishear a phrase, you mishear something, and you mix it all in English and Spanish. This type of like, I think that's where some of the humor or some of the puns, I mean, I'm a, I'm a poet, right? So I'm a language nerd, <laughs> you know, I'm a big language nerd. Um, so having these puns in both languages, it's just super exciting. Another important character in the book that we also find out a lot about is customs. Um, what, what do you want our listeners to know about the way you portray the idea, and I have to put it in air quotes, of customs? Again, like same thing with the names Primitivo and Primitiva, right? Um, there's, mo there's many ways you can read it. And depending on where you are, where you're coming from, what your background is, you might just read it as customs agents. And often that is the case in the book. But um, the book is very sneaky. I'm not sneaky. I'm not a sneaky person. The book is very sneaky. It's a very sneaky book um, because I get to play with language in this way. And so customs often is used to reference norms, cultural norms, right? Whatever, whatever that, that might be. Um, it gives me a chance to talk about what it's like to be living in 2023, living in this moment. What about your decision to have English and Spanish in the book? Um, how, what was the translation process like? This is really important um, to the book because the Spanish is facing the English. And there was a debate at first whether we were going to have it like the first half in English and then the second half in Spanish and not like facing poems. But I really wanted to fight for the facing poems because you get this wonderful metaphor down the page, right? Um, this division and you can cross back and forth freely between the two languages. It wasn't my idea, though. Um, it was my editor, Nicole Counts. I never imagined my book in English and Spanish. And my editor suggested that. And I thought about it for a few days because, like I said, it wasn't something I had imagined. But quickly, I'm like, this is a genius idea. This is great. This is absolutely wonderful. Gabriel, can you give us an idea of the kind of conversations that you hope the border simulator stimulates? I hope people start to realize and maybe ask themselves what kind of people cross borders at like a port of entry like El Paso Juarez or the variety and the depth and the humanity of the lives that live that live at the border. Of course, this book is about the Mexico-US border, but it's also about how we've lived our lives on screens for years now. And it's reshaped our world. I feel like maybe in poetry, this isn't breached often, right? Like, like the absolute moment right now in 2023, how, how we have formative experiences on, on phones and then how that doesn't match up sometimes between what we see then in the real world, whether that's media or, or what have you, right? Um, so yeah, maybe a conversation about media. That's interesting. Gabriel Dozal is the author of The Border Simulator just released by One World Lit, a division of Penguin Random House. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.